This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Well, anyone trying to build or renovate over the last two years would have felt the effects of the timber shortage issue that we faced in this state. Many people, though, have said that the writing has been on the wall for a long time and believe that we need to do more to be more self-sufficient to grow and to farm our own trees, our own timber. Some farmers have done it for some time on a small scale and they've planted trees on sections of their farming land that would normally be for livestock and they've used it also for habitat regeneration. But a small growing number of farmers are now turning to farming forestry, so farming timber. But when the fastest growing softwood tree takes at least 20 if not 30 years to grow, you can see why only a small amount of people take it up full time. So what are the benefits for the farmer, for us the consumer and for the environment if we farmed more timber? And what sort of timber can be grown? What is it used for? And do many of these timber farmers live to see and reap the fruits of their labour? So have you even been on a timber farm? Or maybe as a farmer, are you considering growing more trees? And what can we do to support farmers to participate in this very long game? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt. Your co-host today joining you from ABC Gippsland is Landline's Tim Lee. Tim, you've just spent, well, some time out on a a timber farm and the images are incredible of what it looks like. And, well, Landline has been following this one particular journey of this one timber farm now for three decades. It's funny, isn't it? One of the great advantages of being with a long-running show um, and agriculture where things grow. So um, I think Landline went to Rowan Reed's farm at Bambra on the edge of the Otway's in southwest Victoria in 1986, back in 2001. It wasn't me did either of those stories, uh, but we caught up with Rowan there just recently and um, just to see the comparison. And as you say, what an extraordinary uh, change to that environment in that time. And the environment now is just, just extraordinary. And it's not just native trees. It's a range of California redwoods. It's oak trees. It's just a magnificent, uh, I think there's 70 species that uh, Rowan has there. Um, and we're going to speak to Rowan a little later in this program, but I guess what what is a timber farm? You know, when we talk about agroforestry and farming timber, or what is it? How does it work? I think we've kind of compartmentalised it a bit, Rochelle. We, we've in the past few decades we've had a lot of emphasis about putting trees on for shade and shelter, but you take the wider picture: trees that can then be harvested for timber seems an obvious outcome. So maintain those trees well. Uh, So I think there's been this idea that trees would rob your pasture, mean less pasture available for your your production. And I think the the evidence now uh, increasingly is it's the opposite. The more biodiversity you have, the more shelter, shade, you give up perhaps a few acres in trees, but you gain a heck of a lot more. Um, And then at the end of that, it's a long game, yes, but you get this really valuable, increasingly valuable timber product uh, at the end of it. And what is the timber predominantly used for when the average person is listening to this? They might think, okay, well, that's 20, 30 years away. How does that affect me? Maybe timber farms is not something that even comes into my sphere as thinking at all. But when we look at the timber shortage that we have faced over the last couple of years, you start to realise how much this state relies on imported timber. If more farmers were to take up full-time farming forestry or dedicate parcels of their land to growing timber, would we rely less on importing? I think we certainly would. That, that import timber bill has been enormous. And then during COVID, it was really magnified by the Ukrainian war disruptions. It was delays in shipping. Demand for softwood, which is the primary framing timber uh, we see, hardwoods uh, are for, more for joinery and flooring. So for, for, for roof and lightwood framing, we need hardwoods. And that demand for that has increased 40% in the last two decades for softwood demand. So we really can integrate that into 
mainstream forestry. Um, I think there's just been a lack of kind of uh, perhaps policy and a whole range of things why there hasn't been more of that done. But uh, as, as we'll hear from Rowan mm. Reid shortly, I mean, he's been able to essentially build most of his house, even out of pine that he's grown on his place. So it's certainly doable. Um, we, we hope today to discover how it could be more doable for everybody well, that's right. in, in this session. And it's it? certainly not as simple as just planting some trees and, and letting them go because, oh, trees are natural and they'll just grow and then you'll be able to 20, 30 years' time reap the rewards from that. But it's also fascinating to look at the long game and what it does mean for that next generation. So maybe you've thought about this as a farmer, are you considering planting, growing more trees, a section of your farm to farming forestry. Or maybe you've visited one or you live in an area like in the Otways where you've seen them grow over time. Well, Rowan Reid, as you've been hearing us talk about, is the owner of Brambra Agroforestry Farm. He's also the author of Heartwood, the art and science of growing trees for conservation and for profit. Rowan, a warm welcome to the Conversation Hour. I know Tim Lee from Landline, who is our co-host today, has spent some time out on your farm. And first things first, the images from Landline, it is beautiful, it's well constructed, and it's an incredible masterpiece of almost of what you've created out there. How did you get started in farming trees? Oh, thanks very much for that. Um, Well, that was my aim with this property. But to go back even further, my family's been involved in farming for a couple of hundred years in Australia. And uh, but I at university studied forest science and marrying those two together was a really important uh, goal for me. I didn't want to go and work in just in public forests or in uh, industrial plantations. I saw the agricultural landscape and the loss of vegetation, the degradation of that landscape and the animal welfare issues as a potential for my science and the profession of forestry to make a really positive contribution to to conservation, animal welfare, and ultimately the viability of the family farm through timber production. So when we purchased, Claire and I purchased this property in 1987, and that's going back 35 or six years now, uh, my aim was to make forestry, even the act of cutting down a tree for timber, attractive to the farming community. And the fact that you picked up on the forest look attractive, (laughs) it's because we didn't set out to just grow a monoculture pine plantation. We set about to make the trees work for the farm aesthetically, for biodiversity, for shelter, and then for those trees then to be managed in a way, as Tim alluded to, to get high-value timber as an opportunity down the track. Now, fortunately, we are now at that point of having that opportunity. And Rowan, um, I know I asked you the question, you know, what yeah. are you planting these trees for? And uh, endearingly, you said, look, I don't know, because <laughs> what's happened in that time... <laughs> And that what you weren't being—you weren't being a smart aleck, smart aleck. But I mean, increasingly there are new uses of stuff. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've got yeah. now locals there that are looking for timber for guitar making, high value stuff yeah. that yeah. you could never have conceived thirty years ago when you're putting yeah. in a range of species. So I think that's the well, other exciting element. There's there's timber demand from all sorts of places yeah. we, you, you couldn't anticipate. Well, that's that's exactly right, and I get a bit frustrated with my profession who seem to know what timber will be in demand in 30 or 40 years' time, and there's no way that you do. But we do know that timber inherently is an incredible product. We know it's sustainable if it's grown correctly and harvested well. We know it actually locks up carbon. We know it's beautiful and warming, and we know it has all these other benefits that we keep hearing about, offices with timber are more productive and other aspects like that. So in planting trees, primarily we pick the species and the design that suits the the initial purpose for the trees, the shoulder belt or the erosion control. But then we focus on making it, aiming for the highest value we can Because you can always use a high-value saw log for firewood, but you can't use a poorly managed firewood tree for a Mm high-value saw log. So aim high, and you really don't know what the market will be. For example, we grew poplars, and at the time they were used for plywood for concrete formwork, and it was quite a good market. But uh, while they were growing, that market changed and now formwork uses as paper with a coating on it. So you have to actually... 
anticipate that the markets will disappear and come. Red timber, for example, Sydney Bluegum, Ironbark, they're actually not very attractive for furniture at the moment, but red might come back in fashion. Yeah. It's blonde at the moment. So I, the reason, partly the reason we have 70 different species is because I want to learn about them, but I don't know which one's actually <laughs> going to be the, the one that the market I wants know, at the and time. And it can change so quickly. Rowan Reed yeah. is with you. He's the owner of Bramborough Agroforestry Farm and the author of Heartwood, the Art and Science of Growing Trees for Conservation and Profit. Tim Lee from Landline with you as well. And you know what's funny is that when I was researching and looking at today's program, you know, Tim, I thought, I wonder how many other timber farmers are out there and whether or not anyone will even ring through and have <laughs> said, I've thought about this or it's something that we've considered. But surprisingly, we've got people ready and waiting to speak with us. One of them is Julie. She's in Ngambi. Hi, Julie. You're a timber farmer. Um, yes, I am, and um, we inherited this timber farm. We bought it uh, pre-COVID, probably about five years before COVID. Uh, no one in the area wanted to buy it. No one was interested in the farm because we're predominantly a cropping area, uh, right in that family on the most productive cropping area in, in the Gamby. But we actually wanted a farm for our cattle and thought, what on earth is going to do with all these trees? about 17,000 sugar gum trees. Um, I guess from, uh, we didn't plant them, but the guy who did plant them, he attended to these trees for 25 years. So now we're reaping the benefit of these trees. But it was a huge job for him and back-breaking, knee-breaking work to his credit to the point where he just couldn't do it anymore. So we now reap the benefits of it but it is all just going to be firewood because that that's the most the highest value that we can get out of that wood yeah funny enough uh, julie it's a pity there weren't other species in a way and you often hear this but um it's kind of a, a caramel colored timber sugar gum and um furniture makers just say it doesn't sell <laughs> i'm afraid but it is a great uh, yeah. a great firewood it's and, and, you know, it's the best firewood and we have, you know, our own little firewood brand that we sell to some IGAs and to just a few little handful of customers that just love it and swear by and won't buy anything else. And, you know, that's not our main source of income, but it gives us enough income to make the farm viable. It's only a 150-acre farm. But over time, we, you know, we, 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 we've decided we'll probably leave the big straight tall trees and let them turn into saw logs because, you know, we may have a use for it later on down the track or might be able to sell them a saw log. But I agree. It's the guy who planted this had have done the whole biodiversity thing. Yeah. It would have been a lot totally different. And a lot for it. Yeah. Julie, yeah. thank you so much. And Rowan, that's something that you thought about. I mean, the amount of species that you have, I mean, Julie's raised so many points here, but the amount yep. of different sort of species that that you have planted, but also too, Julie is reaping the benefits, as she said, that the gentleman before her had planted those 20, 30 years ago. I mean, so this is a long, long game, isn't it? And really thinking ahead, but do you, you don't just pop one species in and let it grow. I mean, you have been maintaining and caring for these trees right from the very beginning. Well, that's right. And and my view is, and it might sound funny from a timber grower, but I tell farmers, don't grow trees just for timber. You'll end up with a block of timber trees, and again, you don't know what the market will be. And you'll actually always think, oh, what the competition with agriculture, am I giving up land for timber? But, uh, you know, farmers like the ones we work with in the Otways, they plant trees because they need trees. And you might have 10, 15% of the property, as you alluded to, on these multi-purpose plantings. And all I'm looking at doing is then managing those trees. And the management we talk about is adding value to the stump, improving the tree. So I do pruning and thinning and end up with straight trees and a nice parkland spacing. It's not a it's not a plantation. I'd like to describe it as a parkland. And under that parkland, we can have uh, biodiversity plantings. Uh, we can have specialty timbers that will grow and then come to maturity well after the cover crop is gone. Or we can graze sheep, and our sheep graze in a parkland effectively underneath the trees, and that's great for shelter. There are issues of competition with pasture, so you wouldn't do that on your best productive hay paddock, but there's plenty of other sites on most farms that you can you can get that value. So timber growing takes a long time, but don't do it for timber. 
and think about that time frame as an opportunity. Now, most farmers want to pass the farm on to the next generation or, inc- or improve its capital value. So if they need to sell it in 20 or 30 years' time, they, they have got greater value. You can do that by adding value to the trees that you've planted for conservation and shelter and create that a- added uh, dimension so that a future buyer can say, well, I'm not interested in timber, but there's still 80% of the property that's agriculture and it's a well-treated or sheltered farm. Someone else might look at that and say, wow, there's, there's red ironbark, a highly class one durable timber that's highly valuable. I'll take that on and let them grow because they've been well managed. So timber growing fits with family farming because it's a generational thing. Uh, you don't do it as an investor thinking you're going to put food on the table by growing timber. But timber is something that grows if you plant trees. Every tree produces wood. Will it produce a quality wood and will it be worth cutting down? And that's a little bit of management. I actually equate it to a kid rolling a uh, a bicycle tyre down a hill and tapping it with a stick that you often see overseas. And uh, it's running beside your trees and tapping them gently as they grow to direct that growth in the way that it produces high value. It's generational. I love that idea. And I think there was a quote from you, Rian, uh, Rowan, sorry, when you were talking to Tim when he was out there saying, you know, use your time as an opportunity for exactly, that next yeah. generation. Matt's yeah. called through. Matt's in Bansdale. Morning, Matt. G'day, how are you going? Good, what do you want to say? Yeah, look, I'd just like to um, uh, second and, and validate some of the things that Rowan's been saying. I've been, um, I was actually part of Rowan's, one of Ma- uh, Rowan's master tree growers courses 25 years ago, so that gives you some idea about how long Rowan's <laughs> yeah, been, been going for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, look, I was just going to add to the conversation by saying, you know, an interesting little anecdote from some of our red ironbark is I collected seeds of some of our 150, 200-year-old ironbark trees that are growing in the the, the, um, the paddocks on our place and planted the, the seedlings about 20 years ago and I've just been around and collected the seed off those 20-year-old trees now and we've now got the third crop of red ironbarks growing in the paddock um, where the original big old remnant trees were growing. So that's been a really interesting thing. But I was just going to say that even in East Gippsland, there's a, a number of smaller plantations around and with our plantation that's now 24 years old, uh, I've been doing or cutting timber for things like people are building woodsheds, uh, glamping huts, uh, fencing, and even the thinnings two winters ago we used for, I think, 250 to 300 cubic metres of firewood. So even while those trees are growing and maturing, there certainly is options there for landholders to uh, to utilise some of that timber along the way. and. You would look back now over the plantation and you can't even really tell where those trees have been taken from and yet they've been used for all sorts of things. Even uh, even a concert stage down at Braigalong, it was, um, some of our timber was used for 12 or 13 years ago. So that's great. And also I really am very, very uh, strongly interested in the integration of the biodiversity plantations within the farm forestry plantations because whilst the life of that plantation might be 30 or 40 years for saw logs, if you've got all the other um, species, even understory species and ground level species, then you're really creating a biodiverse habitat um, for that whole time frame. And then if you selectively log uh, some of those timber for, for saw logs in 20, 25 years time, you've still got those biodiverse aspects to it for that whole time frame. Yeah, very much so, Matt. I think that's the thing that a lot of people are finding. There's this added joy of seeing, you know, species of birds they didn't existed or little uh, marsupials that come back there's a whole range of other aspects including beneficial insects that you know or, or birds that uh, control insects on your place so there's a whole added i guess uh, suite of benefits that can come from having that added biodiversity so not just timber as, as rowan reed affirmed there Rowan Reid is with you. Rowan, are you happy to stay with us? Because in just a moment we want want to have a chat to Joel Fitzgibbon, but we've still got many questions that we want to put to you and lots of texts coming in on this as well. So maybe you've been to a timber farm or as a farmer, you're considering growing more trees. This is the Conversation Hour. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt. Your co-host today is Tim Lee from Landline. And many people, Tim, have seen the most recent Landline episode where you have been talking about timber farming. They're saying, I loved that Landline program, Tim and Rochelle. It's the best television on our nation, apparently, according to this particular text. They saw Rowan's piece 
They say, however, it's a good idea for farmers to plant now. The maturity of 23 years' time won't solve our current crisis. And that's from Rick in Borwin. And Rowan Reid is still with us. He's the owner of Brambra Agroforestry Farm and the author of Heartwood. But let's bring in Joel Fitzgibbon. He is the CEO of the Australian Timber Products Association and also a former Labor minister. Plenty of text, Joel, coming in on this, saying it is like, as Rick in Borwin said, yes, this is a great idea, but it's not going to solve our problems now and other people saying there needs to be more incentives in order for farmers to even dedicate a percentage of their livestock land to timber for, to timber farming what needs to change do you think well first of all Rashad, it's wonderful to join such a, a positive uh, conversation and a pleasure to, to join rowan like uh, most of your listeners or many of your listeners i also saw ABC TV landline and it was a it was a wonderful coverage of what Rowan is doing and you know setting the example of what can be done uh, in the future but you are right it can't solve uh, all of our problems uh, we are now for example importing 25 percent of the timber we need to build our housing frames politicians love talking about uh, housing affordability and expanding the housing stock but the question emerges is you know where are we going getting the uh, product to, to build these homes and of course on the hardwood side uh, so many of the things that we use as individuals and families on a daily basis are dependent on a source of hardwood so these challenges are, are really large but you know the mountain is high but that doesn't mean we, we we shouldn't start climbing and one of the things we need to do of course is expand that plantation estate and to do that we need to, to lower the the investment hurdles and there is a role for government on that front. Of course, one of the big challenges uh, is the, the price of land and I'll return to that. That's why we are focusing so much on agroforestry. Uh, but on the, on the policy front, we, we, the government has agreed to do a number of things. They're going to get rid of a thing we call the water rule, uh, which restricts the ability of, of those putting in plantations to access ACUs in the carbon market. If you can get ACUs, then of course that lowers your investment hurdle. Uh, the government has agreed uh, to give us around $86 million in, in plantation grants, and they'll be directed uh, to projects like Rowan's, people, farmers willing to put production trees uh, on their land. We asked that the Chubb review into the ACUs didn't do anything that would upset the current framework for plantations and uh, thankfully uh, Ian Chubb agreed not to change any of that and by the way this is really important I mean what we're talking about here is sovereign capability that is the ability to produce our own timber needs but also climate change and uh, Professor Ian Chubb on delivering that report made the point that currently I mean the we talk about net zero emissions. The net side is, of course, absorbing the carbon back out into the atmosphere. And Professor Chubb made the point that the only technology we have available to us now to do that on large scale is, is photosynthesis. Of course, it's not a technology, it's a natural thing. Um, and the only way to increase that meaningfully is to increase the, the, the amount of land cover, you know, trees, plants, other ground covers, etc. So we have a really big uh, role to play. And, of course, the last thing the forestry sector wants is for someone to suggest that forestry is uh, displacing food. Um, that won't happen. One, because, you know, the current plantation estate's about 2 million hectares. The amount of farmland available is nearly 500,000 hectares. <laughs> so we'd be a very small part. But what we're doing is looking to partner with farmers uh, to put production trees on their land, which, as you've heard from Rowan, it can, can be of great advantage to them, but of course expand our plantation estate, start to take a, uh, take a, um, address those, that import dependency, which is growing, and of course doing our bit for the climate. And Joel, did you take on this job because of the years of frustration watching nothing much happening? I, as a reporter, watching what should have been done years ago and there was things like blue gum investment which were largely failed schemes was this part of your motivation to take on this that you could having come from government do some real good in this private sector now uh, that, that's a really good question and uh, i believe i have i have the answer uh, i i was a regional representative uh, and i spent all of my political life you know uh, supporting uh, regional communities regional economies and importantly 
uh, you know, working class people in, in the regions, the sort of people that we, we employ in the forestry sector. And I, I sort of hit a bit of a sweet spot here because I found something which is not only good on all of those fronts, but is also good for the natural environment, including our, our climate change challenge. So um, happy days for me to be working in a space that covers all of mm. those bases. And we know that you have another appointment. You don't have a, a long time with us, Joel. But in the past, there have been some people that have maybe been reluctant to take up timber farming on a large scale because insurance is just so hard to get when you're owning your own a timber farm. What sort of changes would you like to see around incentives or schemes so that farmers would consider this either on a small or on a large scale? Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, uh, agroforestry won't be for every farmer. Uh, for example, some farmers will be too remote uh, from the port of consumption or the mills, which add value uh, to the product. But many uh, will fit nicely uh, into what we're trying to do. Rowan's one of them. I'm off to Perth today for the Carbon and Farming Conference. Uh, I'll meet there Michael Taylor, the ABC Farmer of the Year. Uh, I'm pretty sure he said at some point that he couldn't have achieved what he uh, achieved in in both his productivity, profitability, but his award, if it weren't for what he was doing with production trees, another good example. So Mark Wooten uh, in uh, regional Victoria near Hamilton uh, is another one who's proved how successful uh, this can be. And can we just very briefly look at what that's about? I mean, he was able to um, uh, label himself carbon neutral, wonderful for his soil health, including reduced salinity, uh, he's increased his profitability and therefore his output. Uh, wonderful for animal welfare, just shading, for example, uh, is wonderful for animal welfare. So this is benefit, 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 and of course it's increasing his biodiversity. So uh, lots of good examples around. Uh, I talked about the, in terms of what more do we do. The farming grants, the, the plantation grants will be really important. We're waiting for the government to set the final rules around that, but um, we're encouraging, of course, and we will help in any way we can. Farmers better assess how they might be able to access those grants. Uh, the water rule removal. The water rule has been removed uh, in uh, most of our, or if not all of our forestry hubs now, but there are still large parts of the country where you can't get uh, recognition for the carbon you're sequestering because of the rainfall rule in your area. So those things combine we hope we'll lower that investment hurdle. Um, but of course, we need our farmers. Uh, farmers are typically, of course, uh, using the, the less productive parts of their lands. Mark Wooten, for example, has 3,500 hectares. He uses about, he now has about 20% of that land covered with production trees. But of course, the area covered are the less productive parts of his farm. Joel Fitzgibbon, thanks for your time. A great pleasure. CEO of the Australian Timber Products Association. Rowan Reid, can we put that back to you? Would you like to see the changes that Joel's talking about? And I guess in the same way, if all of these incentives or schemes are put into place, there also, I would imagine, need to be a lot of training and education so that it's done properly. I mean, when you talk about how you are farming timber albeit on large scale, there's a lot of work that goes into this. So it's certainly not as easy as here are some grants, chuck in some trees and the future generations will be okay. Yeah, well, some of the listeners will know, and uh, I mentioned it on Landline, but I think programs with respect to Joel, programs that just aim to plant a lot of trees in the ground won't necessarily deliver the outcomes that anyone wants or many people want because it is about engaging people over a long period of time. So what I talk about is let's not focus on, like, $86 million. Please, I don't want them to spend it on trees in the ground. I want to spend it building a culture of tree growing and rewarding those landholders who are actually effectively doing it, doing research on the effective uh, selective harvesting tools and that low-impact harvesting that might work on farms, how you put that wood together into a, a marketable product without having to clear fill large areas of a farm. Because when we're talking about farmers creating an improved landscape, they never want to go back to what it looked like before they planted the trees. Now, yeah, and Robert, would, yeah. you also talk about... Plantation to be something that you grow, cut down and start again. Well, as farmers, we don't want to start again. We spend a generation building an asset. We want to now find viable ways to get that product into a market and reward those landholders who have done it rather than having another grant scheme that just yeah. promotes tree growing on farms of the type that industry envisage, which is largely yeah. um, to plantations.
there's, there's talk, Rochelle, also, Rowan mentions the phrase productive land care, where you, you don't just put in trees and, and walk away, and, and that's kind of crucial to this. You put the right varieties and you manage them. So, And that's really what our next uh, guest has done, um, the Stewart family, in an extraordinary way, and, and they also featured on Landline, as you might have seen. Yeah, and we'll have a chat to Andrew Stewart in just a moment. But Lee has called through, and Rowan Reid, thanks so much for your time and, and for the work that you do. It certainly is a, a real long game, so you know, future generations will have you to thank. Thanks very much. Good on you. Bye. Good morning, Leo. What did you want to say? Good morning. Um, I was wondering at the feasibility of an annual government payment for farmers who plant trees and then manage them. Um, each year, so that perhaps at the end of the a crop, they don't you don't receive the full amount. You've had it in increments along the way, but the government does take a share back then, you know, of the of the end product. Is that something, Tim, that's been considered? Because lots of people have said, well, how do you incentivise this? You know, t- we, we need both. We need the short game and the long game. So looking, I mean, we heard from that caller earlier that took over somebody's farm who now isn't seeing any of those benefits, and they are. There's a couple of schemes in the offing which uh, asks you to put aside you know, a certain amount of land um, and there is a annual payment, establishment fees and things like that. So there's a couple of schemes, I won't go into the details here, but in the offing with this realisation we just need more plantation timbers uh, in the ground pronto. Bill has called through from Grey West, which is just northwest of Portland. Morning, Bill. Oh, good morning. What did you want to say? Oh, look, I'd be uh, interested as to who uh, on this planet has actually planted uh, trees, grown the trees uh, and milled the trees and built a house all on the one uh, piece of uh, farmland. Rowan Reid. <laughs> Rowan's house is well uh, down the track, actually, built. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm, uh, I've been, I, I, I haven't actively... Uh, Tried. I've, I've had an interesting, uh, interesting life, but I, I, I was really required for economic reasons in the early seventies uh, to actually uh, try and change the uh, the mode of my farming uh, from sheep and cattle to other things. And uh, uh, we uh, started down the path of radiata pine. I've planted a lot of other things, even planted some uh, uh, redwoods and goodness knows what. But but my specific interest in is who has actually on the one piece of land actually planted the trees, grown the trees, milled the trees. I have a mill and then uh, uh, built a, built a uh, home. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know mill. how common that will be, Bill. I mean, Rowan is living proof of it, but, but everyone knows, Tim Lee, that this is a long game. You know, if you're talking 20, 30 years to, to you know, grow your average softwood tree, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing that we shouldn't be no, looking right. at that this is this is our children's future and our children's children's future and it doesn't have to be an entire farm that's doing it and we've seen huge advances in changes to to native logging and you know we import most of our timber so whilst we still continue to use timber build our home frames out of timber do we want it to be self-sufficient it's going to trees take a long time to grow that's just fact it would be great, wouldn't it, to see more of that? And uh, yeah, we, we, um, everyone would love to build their, their house out of their own out of trees. I think the other thing in, in that long game is the, the superannuation aspect. Think of it like that superannuation for your kids or your grandkids. You've just got to have that mindset that uh, this is down the track and and yeah. the rewards will come. It's a text here that simply says, we are building our house from our own trees. Well, the Mayor of the Yarra Rangers Council, Jim Child, has rung through. Morning, Jim. What did you want to say? Oh, hi, Rochelle and Tim. Um, yes, look, uh, I think the proof's in the pudding. And here in Yarra Ranges, we have a regional strategy plan and a planning scheme that supports agroforestry. We've got an example of one particular family that's uh, in their fifth generation now um, and actually have uh, uh, harvested uh, particular blocks over many, many years, uh, replanted and uh uh, an existing use rights per- permit has been granted to them now to for their uh, timber harvest plan, which has been granted, and they're start- they'll be starting harvesting one of those blocks shortly. So I think what it's saying is that, you know, there's been a decision made by the state government to uh, for a transition out of the native forest I- industry, but Yarra Ranges planning scheme doesn't support uh, plantations, softwood plantations, pine trees, we recognise them as a weed, but what our ground can do here in Yarra Ranges is, is grow good, strong crop 
of hardwood, and that's what I've been encouraging. And are many people, Jim, interested? Are you seeing a shift in those who maybe aren't doing farming forestry full-time but maybe run livestock or whatever it may be and are looking at sections of their land? Oh, look, I think it gets back to what Joel was saying earlier about the, the price of land. And if you look at Yarra Ranges, which is the largest green wedge and within an hour to an hour and a half uh, from six million people living in Melbourne, we're very close and the price of land is very expensive. So mm-hmm. it's encouraging those people that own those blocks now to get into this business because the government's made a decision and we have to do this transition piece and there's some great places in Yarra Ranges where you could actually do this activity. And Thank of course, Jim, the um, WA's ending logging next year, Victoria in 2030. So this will set up a lot of your residents to be or to have some pretty valuable timber within a few years, mm-hmm. I guess. Well, it, yeah, correct, Tim. And the thing is that what we're looking at is those blocks that were cleared, you know, probably 100 years ago to support small dairy farms on very large sloping areas which really support uh, the growth of hardwood, Um, there's another use that can be used. And our uh, uh, regional strategy plan and also our planning scheme would support uh, those types of crops. Good on you, Jim. Really great that you called through. There's an interesting text here from David in Long Warren, Tim, that says, very simple carbon price pay each year for carbon sequestered and when you look at the role that carbon or offsetting carbon or paying for carbon comes into timber farming is that something i guess that's been scrutinized enough that people are getting paid enough for i think it's an emerging market rochelle and look when a lot of the people that we featured on landline started planting trees and myself included you know 30 years ago there was no carbon market, but that's an emerging use. It's, a, it's illustrative of here's another use. Um, even lowest quality timber species are now able to be used because technology is getting better. We can laminate timbers. There's, there's timbers that were considered and species considered pretty ordinary timber now are being reevaluated, and the technology allows them to, to be made into useful timber. But really, I, th- I think we should uh, defer to Andrew Stewart on this one. Uh, he's on the line there. Because I, I was at Andrew's place and there was this complicated formula on a tree, a spotted gum, uh, I think it was, beyond my reckoning, but it was all about how much carbon that tree, which was about a six-metre-tall tree, was sequestering. So so uh, welcome, Andrew. Hello, Tim. Yeah, that uh, was a bit of a, a, I suppose, a shining example to me. You, you even got a GPS tag on that tree. <laughs> you can measure that using your phone to, to actually... I guess, what measure how much carbon that tree is storing? That's right. It's a program that our Ottawa Agroforestry Network are trialling uh, with, with another group, and uh, we're keen to uh, keep track of the, the carbon that's sequestered by our trees. And what's interesting is if you um, manage the trees in an agroforestry system, you're trying to maximise the growth of those trees for the end product, and in so doing, you're maximising the amount of carbon that be, can be sequestered in the tree, which means that in our farming system on our 575 acres, we've got 18% of the farm which has been integrated with a great variety of trees for all sorts of land care issues and um, land reclamation issues such as erosion and salting and so on. And so we're managing some of those trees uh, for an end product and others are just there for biodiversity mm-hmm. and holding the landscape together. So what we found now is that 18% of our farm under trees were actually carbon neutral. And uh, that is that is uh, using the, the accounting methods uh, developed at Melbourne University on the Farm Greenhouse Accounting Program by Professor Richard uh, Eckhart and his, and his group to work out how much, wow. you know, the... Uh, Did that come as a surprise to you, Andrew? Um, well, not really, because we thought that we must be getting uh, close to carbon neutrality, excuse me, but we didn't realise how significant it was with the trees that we're managing is actually pushing in that direction more quickly. If we were just planting um, land-cared-style plantings across all of that 18%, well, we'd probably have to plant out about 40% of the farm uh, to gain carbon neutrality, which would then compete with our traditional farming operations. But at 18%, we're 
we're producing the same number of, of lambs and wool as we were 30 years ago when we only had 3% woody vegetation. So agroforestry, uh, well designed, can be a catalyst for carbon neutrality and mm-hmm. having an end product and those trees are still providing great shade and shelter for the livestock. They're not in blocks. They're and, in uh, and class subdivisions. And more especially, the whole district is just uh, alive now with trees. It's been this transformation because you've got about 200 in your Otway agroforestry network um, and you've all got on board and you've really sort of wow. transformed that, that area into this magnificent uh, landscape of biodiversity. It's... it's uh, Quite something to see. What sort of biodiversity well, that, that, changes have you noticed? There's lots of texts coming in saying, how does that actually affect the biodiversity of the area? Well, we've planned about 120 species, in, you know, understory to midstory to overstory, and uh, we've now identified. Well, our bird observation has shown we've identified 127 species of birds, and the biodiversity can help with the integrated pest management and the uh, filtering of water. And there's all these. Um, values that come with this biodiverse approach and then you select the areas where you can grow good productive trees manage those thin them maximize their growth and end up with a product down the track and in a way you know the other thing too is you can design your farm so that at the end of the day if none of those trees are harvested they're still adding significant value to the farm for the reason yes. i've outlined and so that's your risk management approach you, you know, you can have those trees at the end of, the, of their period and harvest, or you could leave them there. Maybe the carbon market might be strong, you might leave them there. And above all, uh, Andrew, it's just a magnificent place. You've got a Banksia plantation. You've planted on a degraded, exposed dam site, which is now earning you a lovely income each week. Yeah. And, oh, and it looks you can't beautiful. keep up demand for the most fabulous Banksias and yeah. Leucodendrums and so on. Oh. So yeah, well, there's, that, there's, there's some amazing things that you can do, basic possibilities, isn't there? Well, that's the interesting thing about this whole approach to uh, integrated landscape management. I mean, we're primarily a prime land operation and, and wool, that's our main income, but taking this approach of looking at problems on the farm and turning those into creative opportunities of uh, biodiversity and habitat restoration and looking at what sort of products can come from that, in this case, the the 28 species of banksias around the, this uh, waterhole we fenced out to protect, protect it provides uh, a really significant mm. um, income for us annually for um, selling those to the floral trade. Andrew Stewart, thanks so much for your time and for the work that you do as well. And as Tim Lee said and as he witnessed when he spent time out there on your farm, I was actually quite taken aback by how beautiful it is and how much it has changed the landscape and I know that Landline has been following the lives of this particular area for decades now. I'm not saying that you've been doing that for that long, Tim, not saying that you're that old, but when you look <laughs> at how different the landscape is yeah, and we amazing. all know how quickly time goes. Yeah. Andrew, thanks for your time. And that episode's still on iView too, by the way, if you want to get a look at it too. Absolutely. Landline iView. This text is from Sue and it says, should it not be the families and the farmers regenerating forests? Isn't it the government's job to do it? Is this not shrinking responsibility? Is that something, and I mentioned insurance before, Tim, because lots of people are a bit hesitant to do this on a mass scale because insurance is just so hard to get. Some timber farmers in other parts of the country are self-insured, which basically means I have no insurance whatsoever, but I have enough money in the bank to cover me if it was to burn down, for example. Is that something that you think potentially the state government would need to look at, backing them in some way? Look, possibly. I, th- I think it's got to be a private venture, though. Um, and plantations have risk. You know, in the in the black summer bushfires of 2019-20, there was 130,000 hectares of plantations lost down the east coast. Um, so there is that risk. Um, but those plantation companies are, are good for that, I guess. Um, but, yeah, I, th- I think it's got to be a private thing yeah. and each person does plant trees according to what's best for their landscape. Colin's in Brighton. Colin, what was the point you wanted to raise? Look, the point uh, I wanted to make is that if these arrangements for uh, uh, planting trees um, fall into the hands of those who might uh, seek to um, uh, set up a management investment scheme or similar um, and seek private investment 
growing trees uh, on the basis that the trees take 25 years to grow, etc., etc. This can be very risky for investors. So I'm not sure whether or not this proposal would envisage investments in plantations which have gone wrong catastrophically for a number of um, or hundreds of people since the 1950s I've been in, involved uh, as either as a lawyer uh, or as the finance ombudsman, uh, seeing where these sorts of schemes for planting things like trees so what or could something change? like that go wrong. What could change well, then, Colin, I, so not, that that risk was uh, well, reduced? Well, I think, well, um, most certainly uh, more government involvement, the better. Uh, and also um, it's, it would be wise to keep um, the financiers out of it because that's where it goes wrong. Because this is essentially a very risky investment at, at one level, if you're looking at purely investment terms. Um, there needs to be some very strict controls on on how any investment schemes associated with planting trees uh, are, um, are regulated. And I, and then they sort of say, I think it's a wonderful thing, plant many trees. My garden, I can hardly get into it now. I've got so many trees at the time. But, <laughs> but that's right. I'm very it's the keen risk. On planting. I'm very keen on planting trees. But if there is financial risk, well, then yeah. the, the, risk, the risk needs to be minimised and care needs to be taken in how any investment schemes like this are marketed. I think it's a really important point and if this is the future of how we get our timber supply and if we want to localise our timber supply, then Colin is right, you know, that it is a risk and it's a long game. So if you're not reaping any financial rewards for 10, 20 years and then something catastrophic happens, what support network do you have? Professor Rodney Keenan is someone that may know a little thing or two about that. We'll put that to him in just a moment. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunt and Landline's Tim Lee joining you. Tim joining you from ABC Gippsland today. A wonderful taxi, Tim, that says, this conversation reminds me of the saying, society thrives when an old man plants trees in whose shade they will never sit. Mm, that's a... It's so the true. nub of it, isn't it? Yeah. When should you plant a tree? Yesterday or 20 years ago, the old saying too. Professor Rodney Keenan is the Chair of School of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences at the Faculty of Science at the University of Melbourne and has been listening to a lot of this conversation. Rodney, I mean, Chris, who just called through before, was saying that the risk is just so great, you know, that in terms of investors, that who is going to put their hand up? Who is going to risk that amount of money and back more localised forest farming and that the government needs to get more involved. Do you agree? Uh, hi, Rochelle. Hi, Tim. Uh, yeah, it's been a very interesting conversation so far. Um, well, there's different uh, levels of risk, I guess, that we need to be thinking about here. Um, so for an individual farmer who's allocating a small amount of his property um, to trees, then uh, the risk may not be that great and can be potentially manageable. I mean, I guess the, they need support from government in terms of things like the the information, the right information on which trees to plant and um, how they manage them to get the values that they want out of them and, and how they might link to markets. But the um, yeah, if you're doing it on a larger scale, there are clearly other risks involved, um, and particularly um, market-related risks in the longer term have been a real challenge in this area. So um, because we uh, have seen um, large industries uh, um, go under, there are a lot yeah. of people who had trees in the, uh, when areas of native forest harvesting were closed off thought they'd be able to make a, a fortune, but then uh, because they would, they would have trees um, that were sought after, but the mills closed down and, and the market disappeared. It's never been a better time, though, Rodney, really with talk of carbon remissions and, uh, you know, the, the timber import bill is, it would seemingly seem to be a no better time than now to, to begin some sort of planting or scheme. Or, yeah. like all the factors have well, come together, haven't they? You know, and increasingly will become more and more yeah. pronounced. Well, there's certainly a lot of drivers and um, the carbon um, factor is becoming much more significant um, both at the national level, but also for individual farmers who are under increasing pressure, you know, like um, Andrew was talking about, they've 
they've arrived at a carbon neutral position and a lot of other farmers um, you know, are feeling pressure to to achieve that now as well. And um, so they've, that's become a particular driver and we've seen that in our work over the last few years that farmers have been much more conscious of that. I was going to say, and is that changing? Because you have been researching this for years and when, I mean, how do farmers feel about either dedicating small amounts or large amounts of, of livestock land previously to timber farming? Is, have you seen a significant shift, say, in the last 10 years? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, in, if you look back longer term, you know, when I first, first started working in farm forestry in North Queensland, um, they were in trying to convince farmers up there to plant trees on the property. A lot of them, you know, their parents had spent their lives clearing the property of trees. So yeah. the idea of planting trees is sort of over my dead body kind of thing. But um, so you've got a cultural issue there that you need to overcome that's interesting um but also the uh, uh that a lot of farmers aren't just don't see themselves as tree growers so they're farmers not foresters um that that information issue that i was talking about before just getting a better understanding of uh, what the benefits are from having trees on their property and all the things that andrew was talking about um and uh and and then getting that information on, on how to do it. And Rodney, we've sort of behind the eight ball. You go to New Zealand and Scandinavian countries and they seem to be way ahead on this, thinking are we just a little behind the eight ball in terms of yeah. how we view the value of potential woodlots and trees? Well, I guess we've had a particular market structure here in Australia that's been a constraint as well, where um, the, the government has dominated the timber market or a few large-scale um, uh, private owners now that have that have bought most of the government plantations around the country um, drive a lot of the market. So um, linking uh, the smaller scale producers into that market is often quite challenging because they uh, they're often more difficult to deal with. They you know, it's costly to deal with a smaller number, mm. a, a large number of small growers. So. And that change of mindset, and you know, when you just mentioned there, you know, oh, we're farmers, not forestry, but looking at forestry as as a form of farming. And I also wonder, and something we haven't touched on so much in this conversation, is how many farms now are seen as generational. Once upon a time, it was, but that's not always happening now. You know that that the sons and the daughters aren't always wanting to or willing to take over the family farm and not seeing it as long term. Professor Rodney Keenan, thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you very much. Good to talk to you. He's the Chair of School and Ecosystem and Forest Sciences at the Melbourne University. Tim Lee from Landline, as we said, you can go back through iView, you can watch this particular program. And as I said at the very beginning of this show, I was taken aback by just how beautiful it looks and the areas of which Rowan Reid, who started our program, how he has transformed that parcel of land that he's got, but also that domino effect, Tim, but that all of his neighbours and other areas. I mean, how many people are in as a part of his group now? 200? It's 200. Wow. It's been transformational for that environment. That's incredible. Thanks so much for joining us. And as we said, you can jump onto Landline, onto iView and, and have a look if you missed it live. Tim Lee from Landline, as always, thank you. Thank you, Rochelle. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Take care and we'll speak to you soon.